Hi, this is the Organizational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organizational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organizational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Today, I've got Keegan, who has um, written a a very interesting book um, called Team Up, A Deliberate Approach to Team Performance. Um, Welcome, Keegan. Do you just want to just kick off first by telling us something about yourself, what you do, and what's kind of led up to the writing of the book? Yeah, great. Thanks, David. Thanks for for having me. my, I run my own practice and my practice centers around this idea of taking a deliberate approach to team performance. My, my background is, is pretty varied. Um, I've sort of meandered my way through a, a range of different industries and the common theme throughout all of those has been sort of people and performance, just um, whether it's been sort of through my initial sporting background through cricket and, and where, where that led me and then um, through education into roles in a, in a range of different, um, different industries. And um, I guess most recently the, the thing that has really pointed me in the direction that I'm heading now is a Masters of Business Coaching that I did through Sydney Business School down here. And um, that was really going into that program really opened my eyes to where I wanted to go. I sort of felt like uh, um, I wasn't exactly sure where I was going, which is sort of the meandering career path. And and then it became clear that that this was a really good mix of um, all the things I loved and all the things I wanted to learn more about around um, coaching in, in a uh, business and organizational setting. So what I do now is I coach leaders, I uh, facilitate programs, I deliver training programs, um, all designed, yeah, as, as I said, around this idea of, of helping people take a deliberate approach to team performance. And where that phrase came from is that, that I was hearing a lot about um, how important teams were for organizational performance and how important um, leaders were and how they all wanted their teams to be doing better. And I just started asking people like really simple questions like, okay, so do you have a deliberate approach to how you, you know, how you support high performing teams and kept getting the same sort of quizzical look, (laughs) kept kept sort of getting, um, well, no, no, the the upshot was basically people just kind of um, seem to either um, throw people together and assume that, you know, hard, smart working, sorry, smart, hard working people are going to um, somehow work together all the time, even though there's plenty of evidence that that doesn't happen. Or they were sort of using some models that I had a couple of questions around about how how relevant they were for the operating environment that, that we had. So that's what led me to sort of starting to explore this as a concept and then then putting it out there. So this is, yeah, team up is the the outcome of that. Okay, great. So um, you were mentioning high performing teams. What do you actually mean by that? 
So it's, it's really interesting. What I mean by high-performing team is a team that delivers on what it needs to in a way that is sustainable. And so it doesn't burn out the people in there. It doesn't overly use the resources internally um, or externally, and it can continue to do that. And I think one of the, the hallmarks of high-performing teams, probably always, but especially now, is this, the ability to adapt and respond to the context that they're operating in. And so high-performing teams, in my view, um, continue to deliver results without, in a sustainable way, I guess, is the, the element that sometimes is easy to overlook. Yeah. And so uh, what's interesting is given what's happening now with COVID, um, there's been a huge rise in kind of virtual teams and people having to kind of come together online, uh, a little bit like we are, um, through Zoom and yeah. uh, teams and all the rest of it so is is that having an impact on um the ability to be able to develop high performing teams i think so i think it's going to be really interesting to to watch what happens here and i think one of the differences is that most of the teams that are now remote either fully or partially remote are doing so having already come together and worked at some point having some sort of established relationship and so um, unlike you and I for example we've never met face to face so it's a different relationship to if we had met face to face and then we, we jumped onto Zoom but nonetheless there's still uh, definitely the need for people to and it's one of the, the advantages for, for people who've been taking a more adaptive responsive approach to teams they're in a better position right now than those who would sort of more centrally controlled and hierarchical. So that's one of the advantages, but there's still people sort of muddling and finding their way through. It's it, none of us had sort of planned for this, you know, 12 months ago to be here. Um, and I think it still comes around the, the definition of, of what you think that a team is, what you, what you think um, it it means to be a team. And so that's, that's a lot of the, the conversations I have is look, well, um, interesting you use the word virtual and I sort of kind of um, poke the bear a little bit with people and sort of say let's not have virtual teams let's just have remote teams um, sort of virtual implies this thing that's not quite real um, and yet I think we can have real teams that are remote yeah. and so I think that's one of the, the the conversations I've been having with leaders and teams is that we can still have all of these things that that are the hallmarks of a team, just doing it remotely, but it, under, it, it takes a requirement. It takes an understanding of what, what a team is and, and how they operate in order to do that. Yeah. So, so what do you see the differences between, say, a team and a group, for example? You know, what, what is a team for you? Well, I've, um, I've borrowed the, the classic Katz and Back and Smith um, definition of a, of a team. So a small group of people who uh, share a common purpose and objective. I may miss a couple of these words, but uh, who hold each other mutually accountable um, and, and work in that way. And so part of what that is, the, the implication of that is that they uh, have, a per, have their own purpose and identity that is aligned to the organisation's objectives, but is not automatically inherited and so there's sort of importance of that um, and it's certainly around this idea of what do the team members do do they do they just need to follow the orders and execute on what they're told or do they um, contribute and share some of those leadership responsibilities and I think that's one of the, the hallmarks is that they're shared leadership as opposed to centralized um, hierarchical leadership 
That's one of the things around real teams. And, and in essence, it's about them being greater than the sum of their parts, about um, sort of the, the alchemy, you know, that somehow we can um, leverage each other's strengths and capabilities to be, to do stuff interdependently that we can't do independently. I, th- I think there's also um, there's a difference in experience being within a team or being within a, a group, a sense of cohesion, and, and also a sense of predictability that you can kind of predict what the other people are doing. You trust them. There's this sense of yeah. um, uh, togetherness, but every, it's th- there's a sense of cohesion where all the parts are, are working together rather than yeah. parts not working with, you know, so there's more conflict in groups and things like this. Yeah, absolutely. That, that you know, cohesion's a, it's a big part of the, the framework that I've set up here that without it, it's, it's really hard to imagine how you can be greater than the sum of your parts. If you haven't found a way to work well together, you can only ever be the sum of your parts or less. Um, if, if you're not adding to the next person's role or the, the previous, you know, each other, it's it's just not going to elevate you to that that idea of being greater than the sum of your parts. And so that, that cohesion is so important to that. Um, and I think you're right around there's some subjectivity around this, the experience. The, the, one of the phrases I use in the book is this idea of humans, not resources. And so in, in groups, we can often feel like we're just a resource. And if I wasn't here, someone else would just come here and do it. And I'm just a, a cog in this machine. Whereas, you know, the experience of great teams is that you feel like your, your unique perspective, experience and uh, values add to this team and they're, they're valued there. And I think that's one of the, the real things that the high-performing teams offer their, their members. And so it's a really great experience. You know, anyone, that, if you think of the best team you've been a part of, it's, it's a pretty good part of, it's, you know, it's a good little period of your life, even if it's only for a few weeks. Yes, yes, definitely. And I, I think it's important and that, that experience tends to get missed out in a lot of um kind of dialogues about teams you know they talk about structures and and goals and things like that but actually the internal experience of being part of a something that's working together and that's something that's drawing on your own expertise and knowledge is really important as part of this because those emotions make a big difference absolutely so well, you know in the title of the book uh, deliberative practice what do you actually mean by that I think it's really influenced by um, Anders Ericsson's work around deliberate practice. So this idea that, um, you know, the, you know, there's a bit of that debate that I'm sure you'd be familiar with it around, do you just, you know, is volume of practice more important or is the the quality of factor as well? And um, yes, you need a lot of practice, but you need it to be the right type of practice. And I'm experiencing that right now with my golf. I realized that recently I'm, I haven't got better over the last 15 years. I've just been doing the same sorts of things and um, haven't been improving and just discovered nearby practice facility that gives me a lot of feedback and I can get the right guidance I can you know get a couple of lessons and all of a sudden with I can change the trajectory of my performance and I think there's around that with um with teams just because we've been parts of lots of teams just because we've had a lot of experience around it doesn't necessarily mean that we're, we're improving the, the performance of those teams and so the opportunity to sit back and reflect and go, well, how do we, what do we think it takes to, to make a team work well together? 
and let's run almost like running some experiences. Does this work for us? Does this work for us? And calling on the evidence that we've got available to us and sort of saying, we think that this is likely to improve performance. And it almost always does by paying some closer attention to it and noticing some things rather than just continuing on the path that you're already down. Um, and it may be even, I often say this to people, it's like having a, an eye test. If you, you go and you go through this process and go, your, your optician says, yep, you're okay. Your, your script doesn't need to change. You can actually go forward for the next 12 months with a lot more confidence um, as opposed to, you know, have I got the right script in? So at worst, that's sort of what can happen when we, we look to take a deliberate approach. Almost always though, it leads to people going, yeah, I think we've just, we've missed this opportunity. I think if we do these things, we can implement better approaches. And so I think it's that. It's the idea of, of having a plan and having an intent of how you will either establish or maintain or improve your team's performance. And because you, you, you raised the issue right at the, 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 the head of the, uh, the discussion that we're having here about sports teams, and there's a big difference between sports teams and, and business teams particularly, is, uh, you know, I don't know any top flight sports teams that don't have a coach, for example, which comes back to this idea of deliberative practice. I just wondered if you wanted to just say something about that and, and why that's so important and, you know, why business teams are quite, usually quite missing out on this idea of deliberative practice. Yeah, I think uh, it is so interesting. Uh, as part of my master's degree, I interviewed people from both sport and business environments around their experience in teams and it was trying to see what was similar and what was different and certainly that's one of the things that they've got you know their their practice to performance ratios almost inverse to what um is in the business environment you know so you spent 99 percent of your working life training and you spend you know one to five percent of your time playing or performing and uh, it's probably the other way around for businesses. And that's probably reflective as, as well around the type of feedback that they're getting. Someone um, external to that team who can see and notice what individual people need, what collectively is going on, need, being able to provide a lot of that feedback. And that's just not what happens in, in business environments. There's not uh, often people that can observe and notice and it's part part of what you know the role of the leader often becomes or people within the team becomes that that person to try and identify those patterns of behavior the way that people are interacting and and how to to lift the capability of everyone else but you know i think it was um uh, hack some of hackman's work that they talked about um the importance of a coach in um in team performance and it, and it is and and again much like leadership it's it's less important about the title, but almost the actions of a coach. You know, coaching is more important than a coach, that, that there is coaching. And, but I think, you know, obviously not an unbiased position, but an external coach is something that can offer a whole bunch of value to, to a lot of teams because it's just those, those fresh eyes that can, can observe and provide that feedback and, and help steer those practices for each of those teams. 
Yeah, and it's important also because they're not caught up in the daily process of the of the of the team of trying to get things done. Is that they can actually observe from a more objective point of view, and then give feedback, which comes back to this whole idea of deliberative practice, and kind of just moving on from our own feedback. And exactly as you're saying, you know, you can you can do tennis or golf and, and actually you're not improving very much. It's not until an expert comes in and says, hang on a minute, you know, hold the club like this or here's your swing or here's, this is what I'm noticing about this situation that then the, you know, the, the performance really starts to improve. And it's, it's that yeah. kind of feedback that's outside of my own experience because I can only see what I can see. Yeah, that, that, that's so true. Um, and, you know, or, you know, the, even a tennis or a golf coach sort of saying, did you know that you're doing this every time before? No, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. Is, is that. is that normal that, you know, these habits that creep in, um, creep into to our, you know, ways of working can easily happen and that objectivity and that distance that um, as opposed to being subject and being a part of that conversation uh, or those interactions is is, you know, very, very valuable for, for all sorts of performance and teams are no exception. Yes. And it's also our own perception of, of feedback. So in business and things, you know, if we go to a meeting and I don't know, we're selling something and we, we don't get the sale, our assumptions about what that feedback means and actually what the feedback means can be two very different things and and quite often we can end up thinking that we've got some feedback when we you know complete misconception about what we're actually seeing and thinking because it's from our perspective yeah um, you know that becomes yeah. a real problem for for lots of for lots of organizations yeah so, absolutely and yeah. again i think it seems the same deal Yes, I think so. Yes, definitely. Um, so with the book, you know, given that this is an audience of practitioners, what would you say the main takeaways are for, for teams, for developing teams in terms of deliberative practice and, and what's coming out in the book? So the book at a really high level is sort of in three sections, and I think that might be useful for practitioners around um, the way that it's laid out just for themselves. So... It starts, the, the first section is what what was. So what are the influences on team performance um, and what have been some of the, particularly from um, to the 19th century influences that we can still see in, in our teams at the moment. And that's a good frame. And most practitioners will probably recognize some of those things in the, in the clients that they're working with. The middle part is what is, and so a, a way of seeing how teams operate, and that's that's the framework that I've come up with that is influenced by a whole bunch of different research, and I cite every bit that I can in there, um, but I think that that's an, it seems to be a useful way for, for people to engage with and then has a little bit of a look about uh, what will be in terms of what are some of the emerging trends, but what are some of the the if those the components of the framework come together, what ha- what happens? And so, the ability to for practitioners to start a conversation in teams around this, around well, what do you think? You know, are you experiencing this? Are you seeing this? And to to stimulate some of those conversations, each chapter has a bunch of questions that you can feel free to steal and and ask your clients. Um, it's got some activities in there as well, so that if you if you like them, you can can take those and, and run those with your uh, client groups as well. So I've tried to make it 
pretty accessible for, for a whole bunch of people. But the idea is that in many ways, this was for my clients. So to, to give it to them, um, if I'm not there, and there's also part of the, the legacy to kind of go, you know, we, we've covered this. I remember we had a conversation about this. Where is it? What did we do about it? And so giving them some access to that and, and similar stuff would apply for practitioners um, looking at, you know, how how to apply some of these these principles. And I think um, probably for, for practitioners, particularly um, members uh, of the Oxford Review, I think um, the the paper that really sort of cemented a lot of this for me was a, was a meta-analysis by Matthew and, and others. Um, last, I think it came out last year. It talks about the shift in the way that research is viewing teams from input process output to input mediating factors output to small dynamic systems and it's just this sort of you know it was just such a leap from there uh from from that and i think that's a really useful paper and it's, it's had a huge influence on the way that i see i see teams um and i think that that may also be of, of interest for for practitioners Brilliant. Okay, so if if there was one thing that you would, you know, if you were to give advice to uh, listeners of this, practitioners um, around uh, deliberative practice, developing um, high performing teams, what would it be? I think the the thing that that my framework sits on is context. It sits around the fact that great teams only ever exist in response to and as a result of the context that they are operating in and those things are never stable and the the fact that that's one of the reasons we need a dynamic approach and i'd really uh encourage people to challenge views of teams that are linear or static uh, and really think about how we can consider them in a more dynamic way because I think that then we're offering our clients some more value than rather than, so, you know, rather than short-term kind of sort of feel, you know, just getting a, bunch, a team together and having a chat about how they're going is going to be useful. But if we think help those, um, our teams see, see teams in a more complex and dynamic way, I think we're, we're doing them a real, real service. And I think that's probably the, the big thing for me is that if we can appreciate the, the context and the complexity that, that underpins team performance, we're, we're adding a lot of value. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's um, people see teams in very, very simple ways um, and that there's kind of a set of steps um, that will always lead to the same kinds of results. And actually, you know, they morph, they change. And actually, we want them to morph and change because the context is changing. Um, and they should be changing. The team should be changing as well as the context changes as they learn more. And, and having a, a learning orientation is uh, f- certainly from the research that I've, I've read, it seems to be one of the keys. And in fact, this our whole idea of learning orientation is starting to get quite large um, in the research literature across yeah. all sorts of domains as well. And developing a team that's got that was a real game changer as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much, yeah. Jim. Um, so where can people find you? 
People can find me at my website, um, keganluders.com. The book has its own website, which is teamupbook.com.au. Um, and one of the advantages of having a relatively unique name is that I'm easily found. I can, um, I'm on LinkedIn. That's my social network of choice. And I, uh, I always love talking to people about this. And so I'm more than happy to, to engage in a conversation with anyone that, that wants to explore it more. Brilliant. Yeah, that's been really useful. Thank you very much, Keaton. I do appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. (laughs) 